Okay, I think if the kids want to go with Mrs. Jane today, Mrs. Jane's going to be doing children's message with them. If there are some older kids here, uh, just kind of a word of warning, we're going to talk about current events a bit today and uh, address some of the things that have been happening from that perspective. So if there's some older uh, junior high age that uh, your par- the parents you'd re- you want, don't want them here today, uh, there's room they can help with Children's Church as well if you'd prefer that they, they do that. Please pray with me. Lord God, you know the heaviness of our hearts this week and um, how pleasing it is to gather together and worship you. To, um, to sing praises to your name in the midst of, of uh, a dark world. You know the thoughts that we've been struggling through, the things that we've seen. Uh, Father, I, I pray that you would give, give us the ability to think through these things in a way that would please you. Um, we thank you that you give us instruction for life. Uh, I pray that you would give me clarity in the things that I say. And I, I pray that my counsel and my words would be filled with wisdom and good advice for how we might think through these things from a biblical and theological worldview. And so, Lord, I pray for your spil- spirit to fill me this morning as I proclaim your word and thoughts about what your word says. We love you. And we thank you for your great grace and your mercy that you poured out on us. And I, I pray that you would help each one of us in these times. Amen. Well, no doubt, most of you have watched more news this week than normal. Uh, you've seen things that are hard to unsee. You've read of great evil. I know many of you have wept tears. Uh, you've prayed. Some of you are worried. Some of you are angry, some of you are confused, and you're trying to sort through these emotions and thoughts. I, I think we're all there in one form or another. No doubt, most of you have been a part of many conversations or you've heard uh, opinions about how we need to think and how we need to act. Uh, several of you have asked me or involved me in discussions about Israel and Hamas and the war that's erupting in Israel and Gaza and the protests that we're seeing in our own cities. Uh, I think it's appropriate that we as a congregation talk about these things, and I think it's appropriate that we, that we look at what, what does God's word say about these things. And so we're going to take some time this morning to consider what God says. Uh, we'll come back to First Peter next Sunday. I, I don't normally like interrupting a, a series um, in which we are expositing God's word uh, for current events, but from time to time I think it's it's good and necessary that we do so, so that we as a congregation and God's people are able to start thinking through and continue to think through these issues uh, in relation to what God's Word says. Uh, certainly, First Peter is a relevant, bu- uh, relevant book for these times as we talk about suffering, and we'll continue doing that, and I'm sure First Peter will take on uh, new colors as we, as we experience what happens around us over this next few months. But I think it's appropriate, and so today we're going to address some of those questions. And my goal, again, is to take what God teaches us in Scripture, and we're going to consider our 
Christian theology, and, and I will attempt to help us think through those things in a way that we're applying Scripture and theology to these complex questions of the times. But I'd like to start off with three disclaimers. Uh, number one, um, I have, I've also been perplexed by the evils of this last week. I've been thinking through these things, correlating them to what God tells us in the Scripture, uh, evaluating the words that we're hearing from all over the world, from our media, from our friends, from ourselves. Uh, and, I, and I'm going to say right off the start, I don't have the answers. But we serve a God who does. And so we will try to walk through some of this together, but, but don't get the idea that I, that I think that I figured it all out. I, I have not. And number two, um, I, I'm very well aware that very many of you have already heard the opinions of very many people this week. Uh, you've seen so many uh, videos on YouTube and Fox News and CNN and BBC and all those. Um, it's not my goal to repeat those, those opinions and those points. Uh, we'll overlap some, but, but that's not where we're going today. Um, my goal is for us to think biblically, even if doing so makes us uncomfortable about some things. So I'm going to try to go beyond a lot of what you've heard on the news and social media or what's commonly voiced there. And again, our, our primary source is God's Word. And number three, um, I don't want to be misunderstood about a couple things at this early stage in the war. I am I'm willing to challenge our thinking on some things, but please do not take anything that I say and think that I am diminishing in any way the gravity of the evil that the world has witnessed this week. And so at risk of... Um, breaking my second disclaimer already and repeating everything you've already heard, let me just say this so that I'm not misinterpreted. Uh, the attack on Israel last week was pure evil. It, it was an infused by a satanic agenda to destroy life and a malicious scheme to wipe God's chosen nation, God's chosen people, off of the face of the earth. Hamas is a terrorist organization that has oppressed the Palestinians that are living in Gaza, has recruited thousands of them to their cause, and has sought the destruction of the Jews. Uh, since they took power in Gaza, they have driven this region into further poverty and oppression. They teach children to hate the Jewish people, and, and then they use those very children as, as human shields. And all while they continue to blame Israel for the destruction that Hamas themselves perpetrate. Hamas is the name of this organization, and the name has specifically been chosen. In Arabic, the word Hamas means zeal or strength. In Hebrew, the word Hamas means violence. In Genesis chapter 6, the very word is used in verse 11 when God describes why he destroyed the whole earth, why he wiped, wiped off the entire population of the entire earth except for one family. In verse 11 it said, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with Hamas, with violence. And so... I don't think that this name was chosen by accident. It was chosen to motivate one group of people and to terrify another. 
unless we misunderstand their primary objectives, and, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on all this, but I think it's appropriate we, we touch on it. Let me just quote from the Hamas Covenant, which is the charter that sets forth the movement's ideology. I went to the source. I wanted to see what does it actually say. And so from their preamble, Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it. Later on, the land of Palestine is an Islamic holy possession, consecrated for future Muslim generations until Judgment Day. No one can renounce it or any part or abandon it or any part of it. Article 7 states that the Day of Judgment will not come about until Muslims fight Jews and kill them. This is the charter of Hamas. Then the Jews will hide behind the rocks and trees, and the rocks and trees will cry out, O Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me. Come and kill him. And in Article 32, the Hamas regards itself as the spearhead and the vanguard of the circle of struggle against the world Zionism. That's Judaism in Israel. Islamic groups all over the Arab world should also do the same since they are best equipped for the future role in the fight against the warmongering Jews. End of quote. So please do not misunderstand my position on the evils of Hamas as a terrorist organization from its very founding to what it is today. Not every Muslim is a part of Hamas. And not every Palestinian is part of Hamas. There are many Palestinians who are living in Israel that are Gentiles, that uh, are Muslims, that have been executed along with their Jewish neighbors by Hamas. But it's my opinion that Hamas is an organization of evil that is energized by demonic monsters, and, and I mean that literally, not, not speaking of the men, it, it is a spiritual battle, a battle that is not against flesh and blood. There is a bigger battle going on here. And I want you to understand my support for Israel and my prayers for them. Golda Meir, the fourth prime minister of Israel who was in leadership when Israel was attacked 50 years ago this week, said in her biography, when peace comes, we will perhaps in time be able to forgive the Arabs for killing our sons. But it will be harder for us to forgive them for having forced us to kill their sons. Peace will come when the Arabs will love their children more than they hate us. Christians, we, we need to think rightly about the events and evils of our day. So here's how I'm going to move forward. First, we need to think rightly about the depravity of man and sin. We need to think rightly about salvation and the sharing and the preaching of the gospel. Thirdly, I'm going to address Israel's right to defend themselves in time of war. Fourth, I'm going to address our relationship to Israel. And finally, we need to think rightly about biblical prophecy and things to come. Now, obviously, uh, I will have no way of fully developing all of these. It's a lot to cover, but let's see what we can do. Weeks like this paint a very vivid picture of human depravity. Uh, biblically, when we talk about total depravity, though, 
the concept does not refer to the, the worst sinners in the world. We use it that way, don't we? We say that's just totally depraved. That's, or that's depraved. And what are we saying? That person's more sinful than I am. That's evil. These people are wicked. I'm good. That's often how we use it or how the world uses it. Biblically, when we talk about total depravity, though, the concept does not refer to the worst sinners in the world. Uh, we use this concept to describe all of us. We are all totally depraved. It, it describes our inherited sin nature and our total inability to do good before God apart from the Spirit's work of salvation. Total depravity does not mean that every person commits every evil that they are capable of, nor does it mean that unbelievers are completely incapable of doing good in any sense. I mean, thank God that, that he's put restraints on mankind. Thank God that he's put restraints on us uh, of various kinds. And we, we have the Holy Spirit in us. But we also have other restraints that he's, he's given to all of mankind until we throw off those restraints in, in our sin. We have civil law, um, the conscience that he's put within each one of us. We have family and society that puts pressures on us, expectations of what's good and what's right. And thank God that he's, he's put those restraints on the world. All of these restrain mankind from doing as much evil as we are capable of. But when terrorists raid the homes of innocent families and systematically perpetrate what happened this last week, when they rape women and kidnap children and the elderly, when they target Holocaust survivors, when they burn people alive and massacre children in their cribs, and then desecrate the bodies of the dead. When they chop off the heads of their victims and burn the bodies of children, it paints a picture of the evil that humanity is capable of. This is what Romans, how Romans describes it in chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. Paul wrote, And since they do not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, in the argument of the book of Romans, Paul anticipates what is thought by those who live by a more moral code. Those that could look at their life and go, I'm a pretty good person. And so right now, there's much unity, uh, likewise, condemning Hamas for their godlessness. Uh, you hear the world saying these very things that, that Romans 1 says about Hamas. This is evil. This is sick. This is horrible. This is unrighteous. A and the world, around the world, people are proclaiming, governments are proclaiming, greatly, much more greatly unified than they were two weeks ago. The world sees those pictures and says, that is evil. 
Thankfully, I'm not so totally depraved. But Romans goes on to show how those who practice morality and even those who had God's laws, law code to guide them their morality are also guilty of the same sins. Not all of humanity practices that evil so flagrantly as Hamas demonstrated for us, but every member of the human race is just as guilty as Hamas is before a holy God for the same sin. As a race, we are totally depraved. Now, I'm not addressing this in order to justify Hamas, not in any way whatsoever. Don't, don't take that wrong. But as we think about these things biblically, we need to do so rightly. And I think right now, most of America, not all of America, but most of America and Europe are, are rightly condemning the atrocities that, that we've witnessed. But, but one of the things that we need to think rightly about is that we need to be careful we need to be careful as Christians that we do not use the evils of the few as a means of justifying the seemingly less depraved, depraved of our more civilized nations. Just a couple examples. In the United States, we consider ourselves a bit more civilized, a bit more moral than what we've seen. And yet one estimate claims that we have over one million people living within our country who are victims of human trafficking, including those who are subject to forced labor, forced marriages, sex trafficking. It's right here in our area. We live in one of the hotbeds of, of sex trafficking, and we have a community just north of us in Makokoda from another nation of the world that's part of that. Uh, appreciate those of you who have been involved in, in aiding that group of, of internationals who were brought here to work and who have been deprived of their freedoms. That slavery is happening right here in our counties. In the United States, we also have murdered between 600,000 and 1 million babies last year before they left the safety of the womb. We don't do it in the cribs. We don't burn their bodies. We just throw them in the dumpster. We have to understand that our nation is just as capable of the same kinds of evil. And it's easy to look at others around the world, and rightfully, we call it evil. But let us not excuse our own culture, who have committed the same sins. We just do it in a sterile environment of a medical clinic. It's important that we think rightly about sin, because what Hamas did in Israel on October the 7th, does not excuse the rest of humanity from their depravity, but instead what it does is it focuses a beacon of darkness on what every person is capable of if the restraints are removed. And it shows us how utterly lost mankind is and how incapable we are of doing what pleases our God. Understanding the depravity of man is essential because without a right view of sin, we cannot understand our desperate need for salvation. You see, if you misunderstand depravity, then one can be led to the conclusion that they are more worthy of being saved by God than somebody else. We know that's not true, do we? don't we? Wasn't that part of Jonah's struggle? 
at least in his application of it. In chapter 1, God commanded Jonah, he said, Rise, go to Nineveh, the, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Do you think Jonah could agree with that statement? They were evil. Now, I want you to remember that Nineveh was Hamas in the 8th century B.C. Nineveh was the Isis of the Old Testament. They would behead their victims and stack their skulls in pyramids just in order to petrify their subjects. They would tie people limb from limb to different horses and tear them apart. They would find ways to destroy and to obliterate people and to strike terror into those that were their subjects. So Jonah didn't want to go. He agreed with God that their evil had risen before God, and therefore Jonah, rather than go and preach to them, he went the other way. Well, you probably know the story. Great storm, the great fish. God gets Jonah to Nineveh via a very long route, and, and Jonah calls out against it. He calls out against Nineveh, and he preaches to them, and he warns them of the judgment that's coming. And then, what did he do? He went up on a high spot. Why? To watch. Now, I, I usually read Jonah, and I go, that's sick. But I have to ask myself, there's a little bit of that in me this week. How many of us can relate to that? That desire for justice, that desire that people pay. You might be able to relate a little bit to Jonah's desire to see God pour out his wrath on a people that do evil. But the destruction didn't come. Nineveh is not going to fall for over a hundred more years. The people repent, the king and the people, they repented of their sin. And what God shows mercy to Nineveh, this terrorist nation of the Old Testament. And then in chapter 4, Jonah sees that God showed mercy, that judgment never comes, the fire never falls from heaven. And Jonah prayed and said, Oh, Lord! Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That, I, that, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. How would you feel if true repentance took place in Gaza tomorrow? What if God stayed his hand and brought salvation in the planning room of the Hamas leaders? Would we be disappointed if justice was thwarted and God poured out his steadfast love? My friends, it's important that we think rightly about sin so that we may rightly think about salvation. And, and I want us to be clear that one day God will bring about ultimate justice and the whole universe will praise the glory of his name for how perfectly he has accomplished it. And sometimes God brings about justice on those who perpetrate evil during this lifetime. Sometimes it comes in eternity. One of the things that God has done is he's established human government in part for this purpose. 
However, as Christians and followers of Jesus Christ, we must think beyond the role of government and the duty of nations to the great commission that's been given to us by our Lord. We of all people should be aware of the human depravity, aware of our own human depravity before we knew Christ and how the Lord Jesus Christ stepped into this depraved species and he lived righteously. And, And then he died on a cross. He became our sin. He took our wrath upon himself. Oh, you man of faith, you you have tasted the goodness of God's mercy and your spirit has been raised to new life. We of all people should understand the need for those who are covered in sin to hear the good news of what Jesus did for them. And, And so there are Muslims and Hindus, and Jews, and atheists, and Buddhists around the world who need to hear of God's mercy. And their only hope, Hamas, their only hope is Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen from the grave. People all around the world, excuse me, there are people all around you who are just as lost in their depravity as the evil members of Hamas. And so thinking rightly about sin and salvation brings us to pray for them and to love them and to preach the good news of the one that we serve who is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That needs to be our heart. Our heart should be to to share the gospel with these people who are so evil. I'm well aware there are some of you this week who have done that. You've had opportunities such as this to pray for your persecutors, to share Jesus with them. But that leads us to something of a paradoxical question. And, and here's where some of the questions are really get muddled, I think. And, and I'm still struggling with a lot of this as well. You see, if God is a God of mercy and desires the salvation of even Hamas, does Israel have a right to defend themselves in time of war? Is now the time for the world to tell Israel to lay down their weapons? And while the children are still waiting for their funerals, should Christians support a ceasefire? Is it wrong for Israel to pursue their enemies? Is it wrong for Israel to rescue their children that are still in the hands of their Hamas captors? And we don't know what's happening to them today. We don't want to think about what's happening to them today if they're still alive. Time prevents us from fully discussing a theology of war here, but but let's briefly lay out what we find in Scripture. The the foundation for human government is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 9. God God has just destroyed the the violence of humanity. We we read about it in chapter 6. We read about the Hamas that God assessed, and, and he wiped humanity off the face of the earth except for one family with a great flood. And one of the very first things that he does after they come off of the ark is he establishes a rule for mankind. One of the first laws recorded in the Bible. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. 
In the book of Daniel, it's declared that God raises up kings and God brings kings down. Human governments, my friends, they are fallen entities, but the scripture is clear that God uses the human governments around the world in part to bring about his purposes and that God oftentimes then judges those very nations and those governments that supersede their authority. Nebuchadnezzar was a great example in the book of Daniel. He was supposed to go in and judge Israel. God used a foreign nation to judge Israel for their sin. And then he went beyond what he was supposed to do and he perpetrated great evil himself and God judged Babylon. In the New Testament, Paul commands the Romans to be subject to their governing authority. He says in chapter 13, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. We're going to see a parallel passage to that uh, in a couple weeks in 1 Peter chapter 2, when she talks about how government has been set up to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. In Romans, Paul then goes on, he talks about paying your taxes, giving respect and honor where it's due. But the authority of governing bodies includes capital punishment for those who take the life of another. It includes just war. The the principle is this, that God's word sets forth all the way back in Genesis, and we see it throughout the New Testament, that God values life. He values all of life. And if an animal takes a human life, it pays with its own life. If a man takes a human life, he pays with his own life. God has established the greatest consequence for the one who destroys those created in his own image. Let me share just three examples that we find of those that were most vulnerable in society being assaulted and kidnapped, similar to what we've seen this last week, and how God uses the tribal leaders or the nation to implement this kind of justice that we find in these passages. Uh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll just briefly summarize each one because I know that we're going to go over already today. In, in Genesis chapter 14, we find an account of uh, five kings who attack four other kings. And, and they make this alliance against one another. A, a battle ensues, and in the process, Abraham's nephew Lot, along with his family and, and all of Sodom and Gomorrah and the villages that he lived around, were taken captive. They were taken as part of the plunder. Lot was taken as a prisoner of war. And so someone escapes, and they come to Abram. And so Abram put together his trained men, and they went after the captors, and he rescued his family and the others who had been taken away. He makes war on them, and he defends the people. In Exodus chapter 17, we find another account of the Israelites. This is right after they've left Egypt. They're they're still disorganized, everybody's kind of marching to their own drum they're marching with their own tribes and and they're kind of going at their own pace and and because of that guess what's happening the sick the elderly those that are tired those that are handicapped they're they're lagging behind they fall behind 
And then a group called the Amalekites come in. And in an unprovoked attack, they fought against, uh, against Israel. Israel. We're told in Deuteronomy chapter 25 when Moses account, recounted these things to the next generation that the Amalekites attacked while Israel was faint and weary and they attacked the weakest of Israel who were lagging behind the rest of the camp. It was a sick, atrocious, evil attack that took advantage of the weakest of Israel. After that time, Israel's going to learn to take care of the weak. It was a lesson for them. From that point on, they organized their camp. Those that were weak marched in the middle, protected by the front and the back, where the, the fiercest of their soldiers would defend all of the people. After this attack, Moses sent Joshua and their young men to fight the Amalekites. This is the, the story where Moses stood on top of the hill and raised his hands, and when he grew tired and dropped his hands, the Amalekites would win, and when he raised his hands, they would win, and Aaron and his sons would hold his hands up the rest of the day. Moses sent Joshua and their young men to fight the Amalekites, and they achieved a great victory. Later on, a descendant of the Amalekites attempted to obliterate Israel during the days of Esther. Once again, the Jews were given the right to defend themselves, not only to defend themselves, but to attack their enemies who wished them dead, who meant them harm. One more, 1 Samuel chapter 30. David was out to war, and uh, he, he's actually working with the Philistines because Saul wants to kill him, and so he found refuge with Saul's enemy. It's a crazy story. But um, while he's fighting with the Philistines, and they're fighting whether he should fight with them or not, um, while he and his men are away, their village was attacked by the Amalekites again. And the Amalekites came, and they didn't kill anyone, but they took the village, they burned it to the ground, and they took all of their women and all the children, the great and the small. They took everyone captive. And so when David and his men come back, they almost, they're in despair. They almost killed David. And then David calls out to the Lord and he asks if he should pursue the Amalekites. And God directly answers him through the high priest. And the Lord responds to pursue. For he will surely overtake them and rescue. And then another battle ensues and David's army achieves a great victory and only allows 400 men to escape alive. There are those who, who, would just, who, would, who would suggest and argue that, that justified war is murder. They confuse the word murder with the word kill. The, the commandment is never thou shalt not kill. It's thou shalt not murder. There's a difference. Otherwise, every time you stepped on an ant, you'd be in big trouble. It's not murder. Capital punishment. War. I'm repeating myself now. We don't have time for that. just isn't the case throughout scripture the scripture specifically states that god has given the sword to governing authorities and while i don't have the right to personally take revenge and seek my own justice it is the right of a nation to protect its people it is the right of a nation to carry out justice and right now israel stands on a precipice in 2023 their enemies are intent on the genocide of the jewish people and Israel is a fight for its survival. From every side, people are calling for their death. And they are fighting to live. In complete honesty, I, I, I don't understand all the complexities 
I'll be honest with you, I don't understand all the layers of what this kind of war entails. I, I know that they, they, they knock on the top of these buildings and then drop bombs. I don't know the length of that. I don't understand it all, really, I don't. Um, what is justified, what is right, it, it's so messy, as war always is. But it would be foolish for Israel to abandon their captives who are still behind enemy lines at this time and to abandon them to their deaths or a fate worse than death. And it is an arrogant demand of those who live outside of Israel to command them to cease their pursuit of those who just murdered their children. I believe Israel is within their rights to fight this war. And as Christians, we should desire and pray for peace. But we should also be those who support Israel's right to wage a just war against Hamas. Now, it leads us to another question, though, and I know, I know it's lingering there, uh, regarding our relationship with Israel. What should it be? Uh, God, God is clear in, in the Scripture that he chose Abraham from among the, the nations to, to bless and, and to make him a blessing. And this promise was passed on to Isaac and was passed on to Jacob and was inherited by Israel. And eventually... God gave Israel the land of Canaan for their possession, and they remained his chosen people even when they continued to disobey and reject him. And as he promised, he led them into captivity for their sin, and then he brought them back to the land. He'd done so once again. After centuries, they were dispersed around the world, and for the first time, a nation, as God prophesied in Zechariah, was brought back. And we see the fulfillment of these things in some of your lifetimes. It's amazing. Never as a nation ceased to exist has kept their own identity for centuries and then come back and become a nation again even redeveloping the language that they once spoke centuries before even as after israel crucified their messiah who himself was born a jew the new testament makes it clear that god is not finished with his chosen people the beauty of the mystery of the church is that we've become partakers in the blessings that are intended for Israel. We, we participate in the blessings that they will one day enjoy. But the New Testament also makes it clear that while Israel is currently living in rebellion to their Messiah, they are still rejecting Jesus. The Lord is going to bring about their salvation, and one day he will bring them to a point where they see the one whom they have pierced, and all this to say that God is not done with his people and not done with his promises. He is not done with the nation of Israel. And it's wrong for us to dismiss them. We need to take seriously God's declaration to bless those who bless Israel and to curse those who curse. It, it should be our desire to share the gospel to the Jews. We, after all, are the first fruits of the blessings that belong to them. Paul himself, the apostle to the Gentiles, said and declared that salvation was for the Jew first and then for the Greek. That's why he always went to the synagogues when he went from town to town. And he went there first. And with David, who was the first to make Jerusalem a Jewish city, we should echo his words in Psalm 122 when he said, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May, the, may they be secure who love you. May they be within your walls and security within your towers. However, again, Christians who are seeking to think and act rightly in these, as Christians who are thinking, excuse me, as Christians who are seeking to, to 
think and act rightly in these days, we also need to be wise. Because, because of God's promises to Israel, uh, because of our nation, our nations are allies with Israel, and because of some of the very principles that I've just laid out, there's a danger. There's a danger to also write a blank check to Israel. There's a danger to say, well, they can't do anything wrong. They're God's people. And so we need to be careful, and we need to remember that, that Israel is still, um, can still sin as a nation. Their leaders can still make sinful and horrible choices. The leadership of Israel can sin. A, a just war can very quickly turn into something else depending on how Israel choo- chooses to move forward. I don't underst- again, I don't understand the mess of that. I, I couldn't begin to preach a message about that or try to source that out from this pulpit, nor, nor can most of us. But we need to be careful that we don't just move forward and, and offer a blank check and, and try to justify anything that Israel does. We wouldn't have supported everything that King Ahab did, would we? Just because he was the king of Israel? We wouldn't supported, have supported Manasseh when he murdered his own prophets. Would we have followed him to the tree where he cut Isaiah in two? I hope not. When Israel called out to kill their Messiah, would we stand beside them and chant crucify him? The nation of Israel is our friend. We need to be praying for Israel, and we need to support Israel. Our nation and our president is right to be standing beside them. Our secretary of state is there right now meeting with the nation, the leaders of Israel, or has been this week. He's done so rightly. I think it's one of his finest moments. But let us be careful that we think rightly about sin, We need to think rightly about salvation. We need to think rightly about their right to fight for their lives. And we need to think rightly about our relationship with Israel. Not justifying everything just because they're our allies and our friends. Finally, and I know I'm already over, but let let me just touch on biblical prophecy and things to come because I know this is something that's on a lot of your minds and you have a lot of questions regarding this. Uh, We could write books on this. There's no time we can cover the entire scope of this. But... um, First, let me remember that that we have been living in the end times since the day of Pentecost. What the Bible calls the end times started with the church. This whole period, this whole 2,000 years is the end times. Now, I personally believe that we are in the last days of the end times. I think we're close to the return of Christ. I'm, I'm convicted of that. But he could still choose to tarry if he, if he so choose, chose to do we need to be careful that we're not setting dates or seeing a fulfillment of prophecy behind every event. Um, granted, this week's events have been big. And I, I think they indicate that, that things are moving in a direction that we see in the Bible, but, but God could continue to tarry. And we need to be careful that we don't set a date or, or see a fulfilled prophecy behind everything that happens. Number two, there, there are many events that the Bible prophesies about Israel. They, they will rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, but understand that doesn't have to happen before the rapture takes place. A lot of people say, well, the rapture won't happen until the temple's built. No, it could happen in between. So um, there's a lot of things that the Bible describes that will happen 
There will be an Antichrist who makes a treaty with Israel. He will break that treaty and persecute them in a way that makes the Holocaust and October 7th, 2023 seem trivial and insignificant. There will be great tribulation for God's people. But the Lord will once again deliver this nation. They will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And as a nation, they will turn to him in repentance. He will return and he will establish peace in Israel and he will reign as their king in Israel. But none of these prophecies must happen before the resurrection and the rapture takes place. We, we must live in a state of being ready for him to call us home at any moment. And that's where our emphasis needs to lie. With an emphasis on waiting for our blessed hope who is Jesus, not politics. Is Jesus, not a candidate. It is Jesus, not a political party or a nation or a king. We wait for our blessed hope who is Jesus and while we are waiting, we worship him and we fulfill his great commission that he has called us to fulfill. We go out and we proclaim it to the world. There's one prophecy that I've heard many people discussing this last, this last week. It's the battle of Gog and Magog that's described in Ezekiel 37, I believe. Um, I, I don't believe that this is it. And the reason I don't believe that is because there's a lot of nations that are supporting Israel right now. And when that prophecy is fulfilled, when that day comes, Israel will be standing alone. And right now, half of the world is supporting Israel and what they are doing. Now, having said that, it, it's my opinion, and this is from a, a lifetime of observing these things in the news and in the world. I, I'm not quoting scripture on this. It's my opinion that the current attention and the support for Israel is going to diminish very quickly. It's already happening. I watched a news piece yesterday, the night before, that was already calling Hamas the victims. Um, I think this support is going to change very quickly. Hamas will continue to shoot rockets from their kitchen windows with their children in the other room. They will continue to build their bunkers beneath hospitals and schools. Number one, to think that that protects them, and number two, when the rockets come so they can blame Israel for their atrocities and say Israel did this. They will continue to put their children in the line of fire and use them as shields, and when the tanks roll into Gaza, my friends, this is going to be ugly, and this next week is going to be ugly. What we will watch is will we'll be bloody. People are going to die. And very many innocent ones are going to be right in the middle of it. And we can talk about why and what and what to be done about that. That's another conversation. But this happens in every war. And it's going to happen in a horrible way. It's my opinion. But when that happens, we're going to see the world turn in great part against Israel. And Hamas will be labeled the victim. And that's the kind of context that will take place when the battle of Ezekiel is fulfilled. And so maybe we're closer to that than we think. But it's not our job to forecast these events. It's not our job to read the tarot card and just do it from the Bible instead and try to, you know. It's not our job to try to forecast all this. It is our job to be watchful, to be obedient, 
to recognize that Jesus could return at any moment. And that there is no event that must precede the resurrection of the church saints. So, what should we be doing today? Let us be praying for the peace of Israel. We know that the peace will not be permanent because of the things that God has predicted are going to take place in Israel in one day, at one point. But we should nonetheless pray and pray for the preservation of life and pray for the salvation of souls. Number two, preach the cross. You have a lot of neighbors right now and a lot of co-workers who are asking a lot of deep questions about life and death and eternity in Israel. Every, anytime there's a war in Israel, people ask questions about things because it continues to draw the focus back to these things that God has predicted and God has said. And so preach the cross. It is the only hope that sinners have. Preach and proclaim the one who died in their place. And tell them about the great mercy of our wonderful God. And finally, prepare your family. Don't fear. Do not fear. But teach them the truth. Have conversations with your children about these things. Prepare them. What we've experienced and enjoyed in America in the time that we've all grown up is not going to last forever. And there will be dark days that come even upon our nation. It's foolish for us to think that we are immune to the sufferings of the world and to the wars and the things that ravage this world all around. If you want to quote prophecy, I, one thing I've noticed is that America is not in the Bible. So at some point, I have to ask myself, what happened? Don't be foolish. Prepare your children for these things. Teach them the truth. Teach them to love Jesus and to walk with him, being ready for him and to take to be ready for him to take us to be with him in the twinkling of an eye. May God bless you. May God give us wisdom as we work through these things in these next few weeks. We'll be back in 1 Peter next week. But as you have conversations within your family and with those that you love, may God give you wisdom to help us to sort through these things in a manner that is biblical and reflects the theology and the application of that theology that he's given to us. Thank you for your attention today. I know this is a, probably the longest sermon I've ever preached. Um, fellowship, we'll, we'll do here in a few minutes. Uh, we're going to have a love offering for the ministry in India. And so there's a, a, a tray in the back. And so if you'd like to contribute to that, just a special love offering. It's above and beyond our normal giving to their ministry. You can, you can do that on your way out. We'll start Sunday school uh, a little late today, so let's plan on doing that at 11 o'clock. So let's pray. please pray with me. Father in heaven, we, we do thank you for being a God who loves us, for being a God who has given us what we need for life and godliness. And so as we try to navigate these days and, and think rightly about what's happening and to, to walk in the midst of evil, Father, I pray that you would embolden us with the gospel. Help us to preach the gospel, though it might cost us our life and everything that we have. Might we proclaim it faithfully and serve Jesus Christ our Lord. We give you praise, honor, and all glory. Amen.